someone had delivered a dozen roses to my office. And the card on it said, from the women you believed. I have no idea who sent those flowers, but it was better than any Pulitzer you will ever win. And that is my kind of story, because it's someone who was at the mercy of the public officials that were around them, and nobody would lift a finger to help. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Seven Deadly Sins, The Decline of Moral Community, and the Rise of Public Corruption. Now, isn't that a spicy topic? Get ready, because our panelists don't appear to hold anything back. And this is all especially thought-provoking to me right now as we get ready to launch a new season, because we are so crazy excited about a guest that we're going to bring this season who will help us take these ideas to the next level by sharing what we can do in our own lives to move things forward in a different direction. Stay tuned until the end for more on that, because I'm actually going to announce this guest right here to you guys first on the podcast. All right. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We are so thankful to them for their support. Our special guest today to tackle the decline of moral community and the rise of public corruption are... Lucy Morgan, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who was actually jailed for not revealing her sources. Now, thankfully, the Supreme Court later agreed with her decision to do that. You'll hear more about that fascinating story later. And we have Dr. Bill Scheel, the president of Northern Seminary, where he also serves as professor of pastoral theology and preaching. And he's the former pastor of First Baptist Church, where we often hold our God Squad events. Steve Seibert is here to facilitate. You'll get a proper introduction to him and the others in just a minute. But first, Liz Joyner, our founder and president, is going to set the stage by sharing a few words about the very serious situation that we're in right now as a result of our growing divisions. Here's Liz. I'm Liz Joyner. On behalf of the Village Square Board of Directors and their families, I'd like to welcome you to Seven Deadly Sins, The Decline of Moral Community and the Rise of Public Corruption. So imagine for a moment with me if you wake up tomorrow morning with the news that a giant asteroid is on a collision course with planet Earth. Is there any question in your mind that we would roll up our sleeves, we'd completely forget about the partisan divide, because we would have a common threat. We would have to roll up our sleeves. We would have to take care of this. We'd probably have to call like Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, right? The good news is there isn't an actual asteroid made of rock. But the bad news is that we have metaphorical asteroids that are coming at us that may as well be made of rock. And for some reason, these asteroids are sort of wrapped in a force field that that polarizes us, and so we have a hard time seeing them. So 
the basic, we, we talked about four asteroids this season already. Um, we talked about the liberal asteroids of rising economic equality and climate change. We talked about the um, asteroids from the right of breakdown of the family entitlement spending, and we're going to be adding a couple more tonight. The idea of the Asteroids Club is that it isn't a debate. It's about listening to the other side long enough that you understand what they're seeing, which is something that we really don't do. We spend too much time talking about our asteroids and kind of going, blah, 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 I don't even hear what you're saying. So this is different than a debate. We're in good company with the Asteroids Club idea. Our project partner, NYU psychologist John Haidt, has gathered some of the most important thinkers of our time in New York City from both sides of the aisle, and they've been having Asteroids Club dinners. The Nathan Cummings Foundation has offered them a grant as a group of $250,000 if they can come up with an idea of something they can do to address the um, asteroids of rising economic inequality and breakdown of the family. So these guys are for real. You might read about them. Our moderator for this evening has asked me to tell you what I was thinking when we picked this topic. Or it might have been a little bit more like, what were you thinking? Which one? Which one was it? Either way, I'm, I'm going to say a word about what, what I was thinking. First, I wanted to say that the three people we have on the stage tonight are three of my favorite people, so I'm very excited about this. And here's the idea. Human beings are groupish. More than any other species, we work together in groups of people who aren't related to us. And really, on the whole, that's a very good thing, uh, because really, we've built civilization that way. Inside our groups, we tend to share virtues, values, and norms. So we kind of agree on what's cool and what's not cool, how you should behave and how you shouldn't. That's what moral community is. We have moral communities with more liberal values. We have moral communities with more conservative values. And that also is as it should be. Moral communities are really good at producing moral behavior Truckloads of studies have shown that people without relationships with other people to potentially have consequences for negative behavior behave kind of badly. So moral behave, I mean, so moral communities perform a real important function in society. Liberals, for the purposes of our topic tonight, on morality tend to be more concerned about um, political and public corruption and, and uh, campaign finance. And we think they've got a point because it's really hard to argue that more money seems to produce more good behavior, right? Uh, conservatives tend to be concerned about personal moral behavior and the institutions in society that support it, or moral communities, as we learn what that is, argue as we do about what constitutes good personal moral behavior it's really hard to argue that societal institutions that have supported in the past aren't changing rapidly. So we think that that's an important point, too. We think both of these are asteroids. There's also such a thing as public morality, and we define that by the ethics or principles which a society enforces or upholds by law or social pressure. It's the things we agree on enough for them to be laws or something that we just agree with. Like, if I, if I were to give this talk tonight, without clothes on, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't be up here very long, 
because we kind of agree that clothes are good, right? Or maybe you wouldn't be out there very long. You'd go running to the door. Um, so, so there is such a thing, and that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight, is what, what as, a, as a group, what is our public morality? Part of the problem of what's happening right now is that our two groups that have liberal and conservative moralities, moral communities, um, have to mishmash in the public square up there uh, to to decide on what the laws should be, what rules should be, how government should be involved. And we disagree so vehemently. And one of the reasons for that is that something is missing that's been here this whole time, the, since the founding of our country, um, and we've depended on it, and it navigates between our very different views on morality and, frankly, everything else, and what we decide as a country. And that is something as simple as the public square. It's where we have the sloppy, challenging, and mandatory conversation of democracy. It's where we navigate the moral community that is our country. It's what our founding fathers essentially required us to do by our form of government. And, importantly, it's disappearing at an incredibly alarming rate. That's what the Village Square does. We try to revive moral community between people who don't agree with each other. We think it's really important. So this program tonight really is very much something that's close to our heart. We will be having that conversation tonight. And at the very least, I hope that one of the things that we are able to do is offer you a broader appreciation for what each of these groups thinks is moral. John Haidt, quoting him, moral communities are fragile things. They're hard to build and easy to destroy. In large moral communities such as nations, the challenge is extraordinary and the threat is intense. Many countries fail because they can't make it as moral communities. So this is an important conversation we're having tonight. From Parker Palmer, who writes in Healing the Heart of Democracy, if American democracy fails the cause will not be a foreign invasion. It will be because you and I became so fearful of each other, of our differences, that we unraveled the civic community on which democracy depends. Now I get to introduce one of my three favorite people, Steve Seibert, our moderator. If you want to make your way up while I'm going blah, blah about you, Steve. Steve is a founding partner in Trisect, a strategy consulting firm focused on civic innovation serving the business, government, and independent sectors. Steve served on the Pinellas County Commission, was appointed by Governor Jeb Bush as the Secretary of Florida's Department of Community Affairs. The Tampa Bay Times described Steve as a consensus builder with an eye to the future and one of Florida's significant thinkers. And in all of his free time, he decided to figure out the moral divide and share it with us tonight. Steve. Well, thank you all very much. This is very exciting. I went to the um, Brian DeLoe School of Public Speaking, where I was taught to start each presentation with a joke, so here it goes. So two nearsighted fish are swimming really fast. They run into this concrete wall, and one of them looks at the other and says, Damn! All right, you like that one. We'll go to the second one. So, um, so why don't sharks eat clowns? Because they taste funny. I mean, I love that one. That's just, yeah, okay. All right. Okay, you guys are warmed up to this. This is good. So, I'm surprised I have not been dinged yet. This is a, yeah. I, 
Okay, so here's the last one, just because I really love this joke. So, two cannibals... Oh, man. <laughs> I'm ignoring the bell. So, two cannibals have just finished dinner. It wasn't very good. They had, they had, had a Catholic monk that had wandered into the jungle, and one Catholic looks at, or one uh, uh, cannibal looks at the other, and he says, you know, that wasn't very good. How did you cook him? And he said, well, I boil him like I always do. He said, oh, that was the problem. He's a friar. Okay. We have two really extraordinary guests with us tonight um, to talk about this almost impossible thing to talk about. Public morality. Public corruption the moral sense that a community has. We dance around this subject a lot, maybe, and we certainly dance with it in our tribes, in the places where we're comfortable, where people agree with us, but very difficult to have the conversation beyond those boundaries. So we have two people. I'm going to bring up Lucy first, but I want to introduce both of them. We have Dr. Bill Scheel with us. Dr. Bill is the pastor at First Baptist Church here in Tallahassee. He's got a couple of children, a couple of sons, a couple of children. Um, He did his undergraduate work at Samford. He holds both a master's and a Ph.D. from Baylor University. He's an author. I love this. I don't know the other two books, but this is the one book that I was aware of. Uh, The last one, apparently, is entitled Delivering from Memory, the effect of performance on the early Christian audience. I, mean, I just think that's fascinating. So, so he's probably going to be really inter- entertaining. Um, he's active in the Faith Foods Friday program that we have uh, at Village Square. I don't know him well, but let me tell you, I like him a lot. And uh, it's very clear that he is very well-read and very scholarly, and I think he's going to add a great perspective to this discussion. So, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Bill Scheel. So let me tell you about Lucy Morgan. Lucy is an iconic journalist. Uh, She has worked since the late 60s for the St. Petersburg Times, now the Tampa Bay Times. Her career is extraordinary. She was uh, sentenced to jail in 1973 for refusing to divulge her sources. Uh, That was an incredibly important case for the freedom of the press, and the Supreme Court ultimately agreed with her choice. Um, She won the Pulitzer Prize in 1985. And she won it for investigative reporting of a, um, well, I'm sure she'll talk about it, but of, of corruption in public office in Pasco County. She is in the Florida Woman's Hall of Fame, She has the press office, I think, in the Senate is named for her. Um, I I do have a personal story very quickly about Lucy. She she never stops working, which means she is always asking questions and often pointed. And as a former elected official in Pinellas County, I feared (laughs) a call from Lucy Morgan. As, as many others have. Um, so there was one time we were both on a panel, this isn't a couple years ago, and my son at that point is 12 years old. And so we pass by the famous Lucy Morgan and I say, Ben, I want you to meet this, this really important lady. And I said, uh, uh, Lucy Morgan, this is my son, Ben. And without skipping a beat, she said, Ben, 
tell me the most embarrassing thing about your father. <laughs> Am I right? I, and my son, who is a boy, so he's clueless, said, well, he wears skirts around the house. <laughs> I, which, which happens to be true. I, this Polynesian thing, I'm into it, you know. And I had that moment as I'm watching her writing down in her little book. <laughs> she is the, um, uh, I think that this is the best quote I've ever heard of any uh, figure in, of importance. Um, Senator Rod Smith said this about her. He said, if it, if it weren't for Lucy, we would probably steal the silverware. <laughs> I see some magnificent. So ladies and gentlemen, Lucy Morgan. I'm so excited about tonight. I've, I've written like 1,200 questions. Um, so we're going to see it. Many of you know... The that, answer to which is no. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, we've sort of framed this in the questions about public corruption and, and a moral community. Um, and I want to get into the discussions with you and Bill about, about the moral community and sort of uh, public morality. But let me start with corruption. And this is, this is so important to us, and it's so important in your career... Is it on the rise? Is it is it devastating to what we're doing? What's happening in that whole realm of public corruption? I, I think public corruption is on the rise. Uh, even if you go beyond the statistics of public officials who are dragged into court and sentenced to jail, uh, we are we are way beyond that. And I think the reason for it is simply money. There is so much money at loose in the system right now, in our political system right now, at every level. Uh, we have we have legal uh, fr- a legal framework for for donating and spending money, but it is always exceeded by some exception to that framework. For instance, the legislature established limits on what you could give to an individual candidate. But there is no limit on what you can give to an individual committee. So although our state law says you can't go buy, uh, that a lobbyist cannot go buy a cup of coffee for a legislator or take him to a fancy dinner, he can give him $500,000 to put in his little political committee. And there's no one there to stem that tide. Now, the, the average elected official who's the beneficiary of this money and the lobbyist would tell you, well, it's legal. It's perfectly legal. And I think far too often we get into trouble because we stand on that little parameter of what's legal and what's not legal. And, and the press's role is the press, is its role as a, as a protector of of public morality? Well, I don't like the word protector. Uh, there's a little saying that I that I, I sort of adopted from the Pinellas Sheriff's Department's vice squad. About <laughs> 40 years ago, I saw it, and it so fit what I do that I adopted it. And it's, the, the phrase is, if you can't get them to see the light, make them feel the heat. And I don't think there's a more appropriate description of journalism than that. <laughs> uh, so, I, no, I'm not sure that I ever really protect anyone. I, far to the opposite of that, I am more likely to remove those protections which they have erected around them. You know, if you could, um, 
I was going to say change the law, but that's not, that's not your point so much. If you could sort of re-wicker the system so that uh, public officials would behave better, how might you do that? Start over uh, with the public <laughs> officials. Uh, get people who are not accustomed to feeding at that trough and put them in office to start with. Uh, but, but it's deeper than that. Uh, a lot of reforms, I think we have to have a constitutional amendment to do anything about the money that's in the system, that you cannot change the campaign system with the Supreme Court rulings that we have been getting that simply allow so much money to continue playing into the system that there's no way to do that. Uh, and and uh, But there is a way to pass a constitutional lim- uh, amendment that would do other things. If you limited, for instance, the time in which a person can run, most other countries don't have three-year election cycles. Many of our legislators win election on a Tuesday and on the following day go to the Division of Elections and open the account for their next campaign two or four years out and begin to rake in the money that way. Uh, although that, and there again, it's legal. But when you are, when you are asking the lobbyist for a company that wants a bill passed and saying, I really need your client to give me a hundred thousand for my little committee. It stinks. (laughs) So you've observed, obviously, the travails that the press is going through. You know, there's this... uh, Travails? Travails. (laughs) Um, uh, Talk to me. uh, Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Where where do you see journalism going? I am more optimistic, I think, probably than most, certainly than my husband, uh, who is also a lifelong journalist. Uh, and, and was the best data drive I had. I must tell you that I can go through the whole process at the Times, bring home a story I've written, and he will find something in it. <laughs> One day I get an email a couple of years ago. I had written about an execution at Stark, and the story went up on the web real quick. And I get an email, Stark, spelled with a Z, E. Does nobody know that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, um, I, um, I've lost where I was. That's all right. That's all right. We'll, we'll bring you back. It was a question of where, the, where is the oh, press Oh, please, journalism. Where, I don't mean to dodge that question at all. I'm uh, more optimistic than most. I think that we are going through a period of change. Uh, certainly everything we do is becoming much more digital and much less on paper. Uh, our forefathers told us we were going to get to this point, and some of us didn't pay much attention to it. Uh, there are more voices out there than ever, but there are not as many good newspapers out there as there were. Uh, the, uh, the staff has declined. Uh, Chains are particularly bad, uh, but everybody is suffering somewhat uh, in all of the change that's going on. But I'm pretty optimistic about our ability to get information down the road. Uh, after we've gone through what I believe will be a period of change and leveling off, I think we're going to get our news in ways we may not even know of yet. Uh, who 10 years ago would have predicted that a lot of us would be carrying around a phone or an iPad or something capable of searching the Internet? And, you know, how many times do you, do you sit down with a crowd and somebody says, well, what was the name of that? And you quickly look it up. Right. Uh, we, it was unheard of a few years ago. So we may have some new thing 
that, that will be called some weird word uh, that will enable us to access it. And one of the reasons I'm so optimistic is that we have seen some of the nation's best journalists from the Washington Post, from the New York Times, from other papers, leaving the traditional print and stepping out on that gangplank uh, that is digital. And Politico was one of the first to do it. And they pr- put out a first-class political product most days. So I think in the long run, we're going to get that information if we want it. I'm more worried about the population's inability to look beyond the end of their nose. Uh, somebody, people watch the, the TV news they agree with, read the paper they agree with. That wouldn't be so bad if, if those organizations had a more balanced look at life in this United States. But they don't. All right. Good. Thank you. Wasn't that great? <laughs> Well, let me bring up Bill. Can I, let me ask you a question. Yeah. You said something about a book, a great book about early Christian performances. Yes. Weren't they Christians eat, being eaten by lions? Weren't those the early Christian performances? Not the Baptists. They were eating. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so welcome, Bill, to the, uh, to the discussion. And and let me say thank you, Steve, and thank you, Liz and Lucy, for the honor of just being with you on this platform. I'd rather just sit here and listen to both of you chat for a while. But <laughs> now you have to you have to earn I have your to participate. Now. Okay, exactly right. Right. So you know, we talked. We had an opportunity to talk a couple of days ago, just the four of us, to uh, with Liz to to kind of think through some of the questions and some of the issues we'd like to talk about. And we we discussed a bit about private morality and a bit about public morality. And I threw out the concept that private morality is what I value, public morality is what I want you to value. And so where, you know, how does that sort of fit into this concept of a moral community and public corruption? And so, Bill, let me ask, how does the, the faith community engage in these kinds of discussions? Do they have a role to play in the, in the public morality element of all of this? Well, I think it's a great question. I mean, the first question is, is there any such a thing as a private morality? Just by its very nature, um, every action we have affects someone else, and thereby it becomes a part of the public, um, whether we want it to or not, good or bad. And I think um, Christians, especially the church, has had a very positive influence on what we share as our public values. In fact, I'd suggest to you, especially uh, in the South, um, the church has been very much a part of the fabric of the moral community. It presents a moral vision. Um, Certainly when there is a disaster that strikes, uh, the first people that rush in toward the disaster after the first responders are typically people of faith. Um, we train youth and young people to go off in service. Uh, we do some incredible partnerships with people across the globe to drill wells and to minister to victims of AIDS. So we have a positive influence on public morality. But I should also say we have a very negative influence, too, because we are humans and because we are just as frail and fragile as everyone else in the public. The church, especially as a result of the abuse scandals and the corruption that's involved 
involved in the church. We struggle with money too. And so uh, we can be just as greedy as anyone else. And so we also abuse the power that has been entrusted to us by the people. It may not come from public revenues, but we serve the public and what I call the common good. And so uh, we have had a detrimental effect as well on, on the public square uh, at times, uh, for which we are deeply apologetic as well as just very honest about that. In a, in a book that you recommended that several of us read uh, entitled uh, Healing the Heart of Democracy, the author suggests that, um, that there are two elements that are very important to to finding common moral ground. And he suggests that you need humility and chutzpah. Would you comment on, on what he was trying to articulate there? Yeah, I think what uh, Parker Palmer suggests, who is a Quaker, by the way, um, and has written this wonderful book about uh, a topic that we're sharing together tonight, and it is both the assertiveness of a person of faith as well as the humility to admit that we, as the Apostle Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, that there is a chance that we might be wrong, and that somehow believing in the possibility that uh, out of humility and the sacrifice, in, my, in our case, especially of Jesus, we're here in the season of Lent, the great, uh, great demonstration of love, that that humility as well as assertiveness of presenting uh, one's views, but not just articulating them verbally, but I think the best presentation of the gospel, uh, as Francis of Assisi has said, is, is through one's life. You know, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. And to me, that is what the church brings uh, to the conversation is the moral exemplar. You talked about the issue of a virtuous society and public morality. Uh, we provide across generations and to our community a demonstration, an example. Even back, uh, the Greeks and the Romans um, acknowledged the fact, Cicero and Aristotle, everyone acknowledged the fact that you had to have some kind of moral template, a person, to demonstrate to others uh, how to live life because morality is taught, but it is primarily caught. And we tend to emulate those that we follow and that we worship and we go to see in ball games and we watch on the news or read about in the newspaper. And so uh, it is so important as part of our, of our role is to, is to demonstrate that and model it. And Lucy, having heard that and having having reported on, I would think, human foibles for the better part of 50 years. Yes. Um, are we missing something here? Is this just, are, are these just aspirations that we're just not coming close to meeting? Are, are these public? I, I think in some ways there are aspirations that, that we don't meet. Uh, it's very difficult. I, one of the things that's bothered me over the years of watching what people do to each other is how unchristian the actions of some Christians are. Uh, and I, it, uh, it, it, it's, it just, I have a friend, I won't say in which of the towns that I am in a lot this friend is, um, but there are raccoons around the houses, uh, and, she uh, walked in during one of the recent elections and said she had named her raccoon Obama because he was, after all, a coon. This is a very devout Christian 
woman uh, who's an elder in her church uh, who does everything in the world to espouse Christianity. Uh, and I've had a lot of trouble uh, having another conversation with her, and I, she's a, sort of a neighbor, so I have to. Uh, and part, you know, part of me, I, I know that during the civil rights era, Jean Patterson, our former editor, said that most of the damage was done by people like me who failed to speak up at moments like that. And so I think that in order to maintain civility, a lot of us do not speak up at moments like that. Talking so, about. so, so let me ask the, the question that is just riveting me all the time. How do you get over the moral hump? How do you, how do you have a meaningful conversation recognizing that people come from very different moral foundations and that they, they care about those foundations very deeply? They are, you know, it's part of them. How do you, and that is what America is made of. How do you move the ball, keep a democracy working? How do you find, I think Liz said it, enough common ground to, to have a functioning democracy? How, how do you do that? I think that's the most burning question in democracy today. We don't find the, the occasion to do that at almost every level of government and, and life. Uh, look how polarized every issue is, both in Congress and in the state legislature, uh, in part because there's no civil conversation about uh, between the, the, the sides of those issues to the degree that you don't even get the issue fully discussed. I, I think one of, the, one of the issues with the issue, and you ask how do we have the conversation, is, is first of all just the very nature of this discussion, the Asteroids Club. Um, I wondered if we took a poll of this room, how many of us here really think that we are facing the end as it feels like an asteroid coming at us. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just the very concept is deeply rooted, even though Jonathan Haidt is not a person of faith, it is deeply rooted in faith tradition that the world will end. And so we must live with an anticipation of that end, that it sort of sets us to rights and that we have limits in our lives, that we're not going to live forever, that we will die, and that the world will end, that this myth of progress that we have on, that somehow we are going to just get better and better all the time, is just a false notion of reality. Now, the other, the other thing that is, goes with this sense that it will come to an end one day is also the our children. You know, I, I, I found the sense that sitting down, especially in a public school, with someone who is not like me at all, but my child and their child share the same first grade classroom, that all of us have this sense that we are stewarding our nation, our society, our faith, our schools, everything, our community to this generation to come, that we're not thinking about the future, but as the Native American says, we are paying it forward to those who are coming behind us. So. I think one of the things that helps the moral conversation is to find the common linkages with our children. In fact, Catherine Schultz did a really interesting study about this in her book, Being Wrong. And one of the things she noted as a sociologist is parents have a better understanding um, of what it is we must do 
with this society when they're able to sit down and admit their blind spots because they share this common need for their children to get along. And, and there were some fascinating studies during the civil rights era of members of the Klan as well as members of the NAACP coming together and sitting down and not just finding common ground, but reconciling and moving forward together because their children shared the same classroom. A recognition, perhaps, that there's something larger than any of our, of our current battles, which might well be the continuation of a democracy. I mean, that, that might be what it is. It might be something faith-based in your world. Um, Are you saying it's too late for us old folks? No, because most senior adults I know today uh, are are parenting as grandparents, and um, I have found that they grandparents make better parents oftentimes than we parents do. Um, they they bring the voice of experience and uh, to the table. In fact, that's one of the things I think congregations do. I imagine how many places in our society can you find four generations that gather together in the same facility every week. Not just maybe seven Saturdays out of the year, but I'm talking about maybe 40 Saturdays. 70% of Tallahassee goes to worship somewhere, either on a Saturday or Sunday in our community. And most of the time, it's with people of another generation. And so there is some powerful linkage that happens when people of faith across generations begin to talk and have dialogue. I know in our church and many other churches, we have 24 nations represented on Sunday morning from around the world that are just gathering to worship. So, I mean, that's an incredible diversity by anyone's uh, estimation. Do you think, uh, Lucy, let me start with you. Do you think that we are more morally conflicted today than we've been in the past? No, but I think there's, there is more... The immorality has gotten much more visible, if you will. And uh, I, with all of the entertainment that we have, it just makes you shake your head and wonder why that, that there is that. I, the, 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 the elements of public corruption and money and, and the, the uh, focus on money that is in our society, I think has, has probably made us less moral. I don't know that as a, as a whole we are less moral. It's just more evident, perhaps? It's, uh, yeah, it is clearly more evident. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think about that, Bill? I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's, um, it's more visible. And I think also uh, with the level of technology and the access that adolescents have uh, to the Internet and, um, and the way social media has changed the game in marriages over the past five years, I think people have more access to their darkness uh, than, than in previous generations. And more, um, it's more available and it's more accessible and there's more opportunity to sin. I mean, we're talking about seven deadly sins. So, um, I thought and, you, and, and you're a pastor. So you yeah. And here I am a pastor, but I mean, I would say, you know, especially as, as, as society has changed, I think there are people who are better than they've ever been. I think, uh, there are many people who have overcome issues in their lives because they've gotten honest about what's going on. And they've, um, uh, you know, I know in, in, in many cases, um, the, the divorce rate, especially since 2008, has begun to fall. 
um, and people are getting married later, and we could debate whether that's a good thing or not, but because people are choosing to get married later, uh, more marriages are succeeding now more than ever because people are taking their marital vows more seriously. So that was not a conversation we were having 10 or 15 years ago. However, on the same side, there's more experimentation as adolescents. Um, certainly the higher rate of single parenting is, is quite frankly alarming. Um, 42% of households in Leon County um, with children are parented by a single parent. 42%. The national average is 25%. We also have some outstanding examples. Who would have thought that a new pope would have so dramatically changed the way that that Catholics look at their own church? Uh, to come forward and look at people and, and a, a man of humility. Uh, I've been stunned watching his public statements and, and actions uh, so that, that there are you see people like that step up to the plate I, I, it's, it's been almost amusing if it weren't so tragic to watch some of his uh, bishops having to tear down their mansions yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, so there, there are elements of good that, that also get a lot of publicity uh, in this day and age Lucy, and we're gonna, I'm going to open up to questions from the audience here in just one second. But you know, you, we got significant applause when uh, your Pulitzer was announced. And can you share either some details about that, or maybe just in general, what it takes to dig deep into what is clearly a, a, a inappropriate behavior by a public official? How, how do you even start that and and what's sort of driving you when you engage in that sort of you know review? Well, it, it it takes a lot of stamina because most of the people most of the time, if you win a Pulitzer, you have done something usually to a public figure of some kind uh, who doesn't like it much at all. Uh, and I had the best patrolled house in the county uh, for a long time, uh, and. Um, you uh, and then somebody goes and gives you a prize for doing it. So uh, it, it, it's a delicate thing. It's a very it, this project with the sheriff was was and as is, I've covered I've done stories on drug smugglers and some really bad people. I, probably there is no class of person bad people worse than a bad law enforcement officer. Um, they. Uh, they're probably even worse than legislators when they really go bad. Uh, but that's <laughs> it, a close call. <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, I, I had enough information to know that this guy was corrupt uh, and simply went after it. One of the things that sort of led me in the door was the captain in charge of his organized crime unit was indicted with Santo Traficante, head of the uh, mafia in Florida, uh, on public corruption charges. I mean, he, he was in the right place. He knew all there was to know about organized crime because he was part of it. Uh, but uh, so I, and I discovered early on that the sheriff had, had not adequately backgrounded his men. So I decided to do his backgrounds for him. I thought it was a charitable effort. Uh, and 
I found some who had arrest, outstanding arrest warrants when the sheriff hired them. Uh, some were driving a green and white cruiser with badge and gun with no driver's license. Uh, my favorite deputy had uh, been the driver in a series of armed robberies in Tampa, the neighboring county. Uh, had, when they were caught, uh, ratted out the friends who went inside and took the money and split it with him, uh, gotten immunity from prosecution and evaded jail, thus proving he was a bit of a rat. Uh, and when his position as a, uh, was discovered, he, he tried to kill himself with a shotgun, but he blew out the wall behind him instead, so he was a bad shot. Uh, <laughs> and, but there were people like this throughout that department. But it was, it was not easy to go after a bad cop. And, uh, do I have time to tell you one other little of my sheriff friends? Uh, the story gets a little racy and I'll try to keep it from there. Uh, there was a sheriff in the Panhandle of Florida, not very far outside of, of Tallahassee, who was requiring the women in his jail to furnish him with oral sex if they wanted to get a pass to go home for a weekend or be a trustee. Uh, there were some law enforcement officials investigating this guy. One of them called me and said, we don't think we're going to find a prosecutor who's willing to charge this sheriff, although we can prove he's doing it. I went over and began to talk to the women. Now, most of these women had no money, had either drug or alcohol or both problems, had been in and out of jail for most of their lives, uh, so that individually they weren't terribly believable. Uh, but... Um, I believed them. The county judge who who called me in and wanted to talk about them believed them. The law enforcement officers that were investigating believed them. And so I wrote about them. The feds stepped in and indicted him because the local state attorney would not. Um, And he went to federal prison. I covered his trial in Port St. Joe. And when I got back to Tallahassee afterwards, uh, someone had delivered a dozen roses to my office. And the card on it said, from the women you believed. I have no idea who sent those flowers, but it was better than any Pulitzer you will ever win. And that is my kind of story, because it's someone who was at the mercy of the public officials that were around them, and nobody would lift a finger to help. I've got... Well, let me open question it up. that's actually slightly thematic to that for Lucy. Lucy, based on your observations, would you say most politicians start out relatively moral and are gradually corrupted by the system? Wait, wait. Or are they rascals Liz, from Liz, the Liz, get-go? Liz, Liz, slow down. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I came from the South. <laughs> <laughs> she, she listens slowly. I listen Southern. <laughs> based on your observations, would you say that most politicians start out relatively moral and are gradually corrupted by the system, or are they rascals from the get-go? I think there's some of both. I have seen many uh, people run for an office on the premise that they were going to—they they really wanted to serve. They they wanted to be public servants, and then the minute they get in the door, that sort of evaporates, and they are overcome by the exalted position that has been handed them: mayor, county commissioner, legislator whatever, and they begin to immediately abuse that position to get something for themselves or their friends. And it's not always money. Uh, it's, it's Sometimes it's just a contract for a good friend who's got a good business and needs, help, needs a little help here on the side. What, what, I mean, but let me ask, what, is that a lack of humility? Is, is that a lack of humility? It's a lack of humility, no question about it. Which the is, job goes to their head. Yeah. 
Exactly. Well, and I think the other thing, and, and preachers face this too, um, and anybody in any position of power, um, if you have been entrusted with power over someone else, I, you know, one of my theories about it is the, the higher your rank, the more you need people around you who have the ability to jerk your chain. I don't know any other way to describe it other than to look you in the eye. But the problem is our, our system, especially in my shop, actually works against you because the, the higher up you are, um, the, very, the, the, the more closed in, if you will, more isolated, um, you don't have people in sort of an inner circle anymore. In fact, the circle is very tight. No one to really tell you the truth. And that's part of the need in public morality is truth-telling, just the ability to say. And, and we rely too much on um, great editors and journalists and reporters to point these things out, which uh, I think they should be the, the source of last resort, but instead they're oftentimes leading the way on the front lines instead of having folks internally there to point out and to help. I read a Buddhist thought. Matheson, the author, says that, in, that Buddhists believe that if you are clinging to something, there's trouble ahead. Right. And I, I had never thought of it in those terms, but these people are clinging to their public office. And, and it can only end in trouble. And I thought of it, we recently lost our 15-year-old cat after keeping him alive about two months longer than he should have been kept alive. And we were clinging to that cat. But you, you can p apply it almost across the board. If you really are clinging to something too closely, uh, there's trouble ahead of you. Yeah, that's good. What else do we have, Liz, wherever you are? Um, here, I'm going to ask this one question on my way to this other question. If we're morally against killing, if we agree that killing is wrong, why are we so inconsistent in, in applying that principle um, and really sort of across the aisle, death penalty, abortion. Um, and then also looking at movies with violent content in them, and we rate them R, and we seem to not be so against it there. You want me to start? Yeah, give it a shot. Okay. The, the question, I think, relates to the, the position, the consistent ethic of life. Uh, those who typically are against abortion are those who are sometimes tend to be the most for capital punishment. So why do we not have a consistent ethic flight? And that's, a, I mean, it's a fair question. Our Catholic friends have come the closest to being able to solve this. Um, and, and we're not very good at it as Baptists, I'll, I'll admit to you. Uh, because oftentimes what happens is, especially those of us like in our congregation who are pro-life and who are very involved in uh, the sanctity of life movement and with teenage pregnancies and working with unwed mothers and these kinds of things, uh, we tend to focus on one end and not discuss the issues of the prison population, 1% of our society being incarcerated, and the issues related to capital punishment, which are um, large in part related to the issue of race in our society. Um, but I think it's something that we have to talk about because I'm, I'm one of those that's against abortion and I'm also against capital punishment in most cases. So, you know, the, the reality is uh, there is so much uh, in there uh, that we could talk about, uh, but you're right. I mean, we are, we are very hypocritical on all of those things. Anything you want to throw in on that? I'll rest on his answer. <laughs> well, you know, I think one of the great questions there ultimately is, again, how do you even have the conversation? How do you discuss this in a way recognizing that people have very strongly held 
what Jonathan Haidt would call moral foundations. That they they don't listen to you if you do try to discuss it with them. Exactly, and so and and um, and and here and then and here's where it gets really difficult after that, which is there's a whole bunch of literature out there that says, and by the way, when these are matters that are very closely held, we're not only we you we are not persuadable. We we won't listen, and we're not persuadable. So then the question becomes, then what is the value of the conversation at all? And do we just go into our separate corners? Is that, is that what we're doing as a society as we sort ourselves out? I mean, I'd, I'd love well, to hear your I thoughts. W- I would ask, you know, in relation to the newspaper, what is the newspaper's role in enabling us to have the conversation? And, and you know, just from probably a, the average conservative's perspective, that when I, I understand there's a role for the the public to you know to point the finger at corruption, but there's also a place where the newspaper it seems should be the place where a diverse variety of perspectives come together. How does faith and those issues of morality play uh say on the op ed page or in some cases um, online when you're trying to bring together? Uh, a thoughtful perspective from all these views. Well, the 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 any newspaper has a charge to get a re- something that represents all sides and views. I think we fail at it in many occasions. We tend to put the, put that which is it relates to faith on one page in the Saturday paper, uh, when when we could well have something of faith all week long. Uh, but uh, so we need to encourage the kind of conversation we're encouraging here in the pages of anybody's newspaper. Uh, unfortunately, the cuts in staff. The slicing and dicing that's been done of most of the, the traditional newspapers uh, has made it even more difficult to do that uh, because it does take time and it takes energy to go get those views and get them in the paper. Now, uh, the local paper has lately taken to soliciting all of you to write your, write their editorials for them. So there, there's an opportunity here <laughs> that if they're not going to have the staff to produce them, you, Bill can write a my view. So, but, but you're right. They're, 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 the newspapers do have a responsibility to extend that conversation into all corners. I think we've got a question right here. Lucy, I'm happy to hear that you are optimistic for the future of journalism kind of globally, but you're on the topic now that is so vastly interesting to me. What do you do locally? What is the forum now? How do you find vehicles for investigative reporting if your local newspaper doesn't do that. We only have two or three newspapers in the state now who even have staffs large enough to do investigative reporting. And when all of us know that there are things happening in this community that need to be investigated for the good of all, what is the vehicle now? What The frustration is so intense about these kinds of issues. If you or anyone you know knows of something that shouldn't be that should be investigated and it's not being investigated, and you've made an attempt to get the paper to do it, I would write a letter to the corporate headquarters of Gannett uh, and and suggest that they're not fulfilling their duty as a serious newspaper. Uh, now, uh, I don't know what you may get out of that on the other end, uh, but uh, you will have done all you tried. The one thing that worries me most about the current cutbacks in newspapers is that we're creating black holes where uh, there's no daily newspaper even delivered. 
I mean, I spent about five years looking at drug smuggling and public corruption in Dixie and Taylor County. They, they sent 250 people to jail after that. All of them thanked me yet. Uh, and, and, uh, but including the chairman of the county commission, chairman of the school board, the sheriff of one county, the chief deputy of both counties. It was an incredible avenue of corruption. But, uh, that kind of story I fear would not be told today because most of the papers, when they start cutting back, are cutting down what they do in what we call fringe areas. So you've created these black holes where corruption is going to thrive until till it tips over and somebody goes in, either a newspaper or a law enforcement agency or a prosecutor, and does something about it. And I, I, I know I can see your problem. Uh, I see it every morning when it comes in my house. It, it's, it's sad. I wish I could change it. Liz, what Got another question over here. My name is Ron Bunning, and one of the things that you guys started out with was uh, the problem of money in politics and the uh, corruption, the moral, blah, 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 all the rest of that kind of stuff. One, one of the things that I've uh, been, have talked many times and have read much about is uh, once a solution was mentioned already, and that was the constitutional amendment. Uh, vis-a-vis uh, Citizens United, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's fine, and we should do that. Uh, but the other thing is, is uh, there's a concept that seems psychologically logical to me, and that's those who pay get to play. And right now, the only people who are paying for our elections, I'm, pay- I'm paying their salary, but I'm not paying for their elections. And our, the corporations, et cetera, et cetera, everybody knows this, I'm quite sure. So at the end of the day, why couldn't we do, and why shouldn't we do, and some places in the country are doing, um, clean money, clean elections, i.e. public finance. If I put the money into your campaign, and you have to get me uh, to get you reelected, we the people, not a bunch of money, and we the people give you money, then we own you. As a, legisl- as a legislator, excuse me, what do you think? Well, we tried public financing in state ra- in the major state races, and then we got a legislature that didn't want to fund it. Uh, so uh, we uh, we again we've got to get rid of some of the rascals that are there and replace them with some that would would do something different. Uh, sometimes it's hard because they get in the door and it's you know I'm here, the rest of you go away. Um, but um, I thought public financing was a good answer, except that most of the public financing laws have a, a caveat that if you don't want to, if you're a candidate and you don't want to participate in it, you don't have to. You can still run and raise money the old-fashioned way. Uh, so we haven't found a, uh, a, a. Is there any system in the country that works, Neil? You Arizona works. <laughs> <laughs> It does raise an interesting question, though, that there you can change the structure, but if you don't, I, it, it's difficult to even say these words, if you don't change the morals, at the end of the day, it's not, it doesn't get you where you want to go. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it is... Well, but take something simple like Brown versus Topeka. Right. The U.S. Supreme Court clearly changed the law Correct. On, on what people could do to educate their children. But it has been 50, 60 years, uh, and we still have not solved that problem to the degree that we should have. Now, I, I, we are way down the road. I'm reading, if you haven't read it, um, Devil in the Grove. Yeah. Um, the um, book about uh, Thurgood Marshall's fight acra- around the country. 
mostly to rectify wrongs in courtrooms. Uh, but so we're not we're not lynching people, at least not literally most of the time. Uh, but there's still a long way to go down that road. And at the time it, that we got that court opinion, everybody said, well, you can't legislate morality. The court can't do it. Uh, but I think that on, on balance, they have proved that the court can do it. Okay. We have a very basic question from the audience. Is there a common set of values that we share as Americans? Ah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Really? Yes. Um, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's all we've got, um, which is part of our problem. And, and if, if happiness is your only pursuit, uh, you find out very quickly, at least by the time you're 18, that it's, uh, it's short-lived. And, and this is part of the, the, the struggle we have as an American society, that is, if it's just all about my happiness... Um, then we all become sort of selfish individualists um, without any sense of this moral community that we're talking about here uh, tonight. And, that's, uh, and that's, that's part of our, our gift that we have, but also our struggle. Lucy? I can't think of another thing we all share other than life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, except that we're here and now uh, uh, at least willing to listen uh, and do some discussing of some of these issues. Uh, but uh, you? Well, I, I'd be interested. I, I know we've got one history professor in the audience that would probably talk a little bit about the, what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness actually means. And, um, and it's pretty deep and pretty broad, you know, and, and, can, and can form a moral uh, foundation, I think, I think. But it would, that I would love to have, I think that's a great question, actually, and one that we probably should spend a lot of time talking about. What do, what do those things mean, and are we truly deeply committed to them? And I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we are. But good enough. That's a good answer. You got agreement from the press and from the ministry that we have a common moral code. Yeah. I wonder if we have more in common in terms of our vices than our virtues. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have time for that, I don't think. <laughs> we have okay. one there are seven of them. <laughs> we have one possible response. Well, I would just like to ask. Why do we always ignore equality as a basic American value when it actually preceded life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Is it not basic? In fact, the reason it was there was to say that we don't believe in aristocracies and monarchies. We believe that we're all equal. It's an essential American value. Equality. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have another question. An experiment described by Haidt indicates that when people are first told about a scandal perpetrated by a member of their own party, and then they're told some mitigating circumstance, their brain registers strong relief. Do we let our own off too easily? Oh. Do we let our own off too? Yes, we rig the very structure so that we take care of our own. The legislature... The members can't be punished by the Ethics Commission or uh, the system of government we have except by their own members. Uh, so we, we, want, uh, we want only those people closest to us to render a decision on what, what we do. 
We've got another question over here. Uh oh. I have a question that uh, maybe the panel can help me on. It's one I've been wrestling with for a while and can't really come to a firm understanding. And perhaps the audience might want to chime in on it. I've just finished reading a book about Edward Snowden. And my question to you, folks, is, and the one that I can't answer, is he a hero or is he a rogue? Okay, I've read the same book, so. <laughs> uh, I think he what he did performed a service for the citizens of the United States. Uh, he broke the law. Uh, but a lot of people have broken what the laws that were on the books uh, for most of my life and done things that were that that moved us forward a bit and I'm inclined to think that's what he did I don't happen to think it's a big sin to give stuff like that to reporters but he did not take the stuff with him to Russia I suspect that a majority of Americans uh, see him as a traitor uh, and that the system would send him to prison for a long time if he ever came back. Uh, but uh, at the same time, the very system that would send him to prison is changing the regulations that he called to our attention uh, to, make, uh, to make it less likely although probably not impossible, that the NSA would listen to our phone calls and read our email. Now, I don't, I don't write anything in an email that I care that the NSA reads, but I, I, it just goes against my grain to know that someone can tap into whatever we're doing at any given moment in time for no real cause. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, I grew up on the principle that two wrongs don't make a right, and in, in his case, the, the longer this goes on and the uh, his unwillingness to come back says that most of this was about him, not about us. And it wasn't about helping us at all. It was about making him famous. And to me, that's just pride, you know. Um, I think it's fascinating to me, no matter how much we don't like the fact that someone else out there knows what people are emailing and texting. We could debate whether that even should have happened. That it has been happening is something that he sort of brought our attention to. But then I think it goes that goes back to the heart of this question. Is there a public versus a private morality? And I don't have the, you know, we live on this uh, sort of basic premise in America that you have your life and I have my life and it's not any of my business, and I'm not going to get involved in your business. I mean, that's kind of how we all sort of live as neighbors. We go home, we close the door, we don't want to know what's going on over there. But to be in community with Suppose other people... Suppose they're beating their children. Well, that's this is where I'm going with oh, this, okay? okay? So, <laughs> But then when when does it become my business? When does it become my business that one out of every three African-American boys will be incarcerated at some time in their lives? Now, when is it my business? That's important to me. I may not live next door, but they are my neighbors. And so, you know, our church goes down into Griffin Heights and works with a man who uh, builds a house and renovates a house so he can live among children of prisoners in the prison system, sort of break the cycle from cradle to prison. Now, you know, 
at some point, those little artificial lines of demarcation must be crossed by our society. I don't think we need a Snowden to uh, create it for us. I think as a community, though, we've got to be talking about what really, when does your business become our responsibility in our work as a community? Question for Bill from the audience. The Dalai Lama often said that if science disproves an article of faith, Buddhists should re-examine their belief. It sometimes seems the opposite in the Christian church. Easy questions, aren't they? Queuing up, Bill is good on science and faith. I think it's a great question. Um, You know, the Bible's not a science book, so uh, we can start from there. But... um, you know, as far as I know, the, the, the greatest scientists and the greatest people of faith have some wonderful dialogue that oftentimes get polarized. Um, I don't need science to give me evidence for faith because thereby it would not be faith, you know. I do need science, however, to inform our world and to serve its purpose, but even science itself has limits. And I think the real struggle for many people is how do we talk about the limits of science and its good friend technology. And I think that's that's really the issue that we never get around to talking about. We can debate, you know, uh, how the world began. Uh, the Bible tells us why it began and who began it. But the question to me that we really need to be talking about is where does science end and humanity continue as human beings? Uh, we, we can... As Bertrand de Juvenal once said, we can do more than we've ever been able to do, and we know more than we've ever known, but what on earth should we do with it? And that's the question that faith asks and raises. I've got a question here from the audience for Lucy. It's a long one. Uh Uh-oh. Money and industry does not inherently imply a lack of morality. Why does it mean that in politics? If it's the money that determines who wins an election, why is that so? Are we as a society so susceptible to marketing? Perhaps if we stop blaming others' incentives and realize our own unwillingness to objectively seek truth, society would really prosper. I'm not sure I understand the question. Why is money bad in politics if it's not necessarily an industry and business? I I think one conclusion, I didn't make the other conclusion. I, I wasn't talking about money in business. I was talking about money in government and politics. But uh, if that's the question. But uh, let me give you an example. Um, there was There's a bill that has cropped up from time to time in the legislature involving the repackaging of drugs. Uh, the legislature will want, uh, there is a business in Florida that repackages those drugs. And they sell to Medicaid patients, the poor, uh, essentially, uh, for a lot more money because they are repackaged uh, and, and wrapped as individual doses and things, uh, whereas the pharmaceutical companies would like to uh, sell them in bigger numbers in bulk to the people who need them. The legislature keeps blocking that. There's one company that repackages those drugs for Medicaid, and they have topped the charts donating money to legislators to keep that so. Uh, they they have deliberately picked out the members of the committees in the legislature that those bills would go through and dumped money on them, a lot of money in some cases. Uh, that's what I think corrupts the system. I think there's a direct correlation 
uh, between the two questions because uh, it doesn't re- really matter whether you're in politics, religion, industry, government, business. The love of money is the root of all evil. And one of our sins tonight is greed. And avarice has always been one of those that we have struggled with, uh, especially in a democracy and, and with democracy's good friend, capitalism. Um, we always have to impose limits ourselves as we make more money because part of a democracy requires the public to be generous with their earnings. You know, not, we not only need an educated public, but we also need a generous public. And the greedier we become, uh, the less likely we are to share our resources with society and with those who are, who are poor. So I think that's the fascinating thing about charitable giving. It continues to decrease as representative of the population. Even church people only give about 2% of their income. Now, you're uh, probably so in favor of tithing. I am very much in favor of tithing. <laughs> um, but I think that's, that's part of this question about the common good and, and public morality is generosity. However, it's imposed or mandated. You know, I'm a, I, I think faith should be free. I think your generosity should be a free choice. The reality is we don't, we are not naturally prone to be altruistic and generous with our money. You know, sure. uh, we feel like someone is taking it away from us if someone else mandates us to give it. So the, the question is, well, we as a church, have a responsibility, and all of us as a society have a responsibility to help each other. How we get about go about that is definitely worth the conversation. Okay, I have a much shorter one for Lucy again. What is your opinion of lobbyists? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> you, you have some good lobbyists who, who work their hearts out trying to pass laws that benefit uh, people who can't go up there and lobby themselves, uh, try to change things. and But most of them are underfunded, uh, cannot take the legislators to dinner or um, buy them fancy tickets to nice suites at the ball game and things like that. We have some others who who are reasonably decent people who take money to, to pass a law. And for many of them, it's a game. Uh, we have businesses that go up against each other in the legislature. Some years ago, Burger King had a fight going with its franchisees, and both the, the stores, Burger King, and the franchisees went and tried to get a law passed uh, that would have blocked each other from their territories. This was coming along as shopping malls were putting in Burger Kings and uh, college campuses were putting them in, and the f- original franchises or had an agreement that limited the territory that they were in. And so that that all sides lobbied up. You had almost every lobby in the Capitol in the employee of one side or the another. That one died of its own weight, as, as often they do when everybody lobbies up and starts to fight over an issue. But uh, most of the lobbyists will tell you uh, that they don't like what they have to do to get something passed, but they'll do it. If I, if I can sort of follow up on that. Are you lobbying these days? I'm not. Oh. I, I was a lobbyist for one year, and I was really bad. I was really bad at it, so I stopped doing you it. You didn't bow low enough? I was just, I, it didn't work. I didn't wear shoes with, yeah, never mind. Um, Lucy, you've seen legislatures for many, many years. Are you are saying they, I'm old? Are they getting better or worse? Worse. And why is that? Part of it is the structure. Right. 
we went to single member districts many years ago. Then we followed that up by term limits. Right. Uh, so that we have, uh, people who are very focused on getting reelected for that narrow little eight years and sort of feathering their nest so they can do something better next time. Um, I think the whole system has sort of gotten turned on its end. In the old days, a guy got elected to the legislature and he stayed there a long time, uh, but he rarely went back and ran to become a county commissioner. Now we've got county commissioners, tax collectors, supervisors election all over the state who were in the legislature at a mere 30,000 a year and have now gone back to run for constitutional offices in their hometowns to pad the retirement system. And, and to poke at that just a little bit, I happen to agree with your, with your thoughts on that. So again, where do you have the conversation then long term about how you, um, how you change that system or how do you, how do you even start the conversation to have a more thoughtful conversation about how democracy is supposed to work? Maybe you start in groups like this, uh, where you, where in small groups you look at the problem and then broaden your, your group. If, if you can find a leader, you could find someone who is willing to take the risk. One of the problems nowadays is that no elected person, once they get on that little special piece of turf, is willing to risk losing the election by backing something that's not totally popular. Yeah, I think to, to start the conversation, one, one is a uh, thing we need to talk about is a sense of calling. And I have a nephew who is thinking about going into public life. And those who are in public life... Um, who serve in state government, um, who work as lobbyists, or who are elected officials. I, I do think many of them perceive that they have been called to this task, that something beyond them, either their community, their God, somehow. And I think we need to elevate the role and the significance of the office and to gain greater respect as a society for those who are working and serving at the county commission um, in as a city commissioner. I think one of the things is we have lost a sense of respect for the office. Um, they, and many times I've found that uh, the worst politicians, not the best, but the worst, behave like our worst. Um, if you've ever been to some of my family reunions, I kind of figured out why they behave this way. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is, I do think classrooms and congregations, and this is a point that Parker Palmer makes, are one of the, they are two of the places in our society that teach people how to listen to each other. Now granted, not all congregations are as diverse as a public school classroom. I will grant you that. However, it is a place where you sit down across generations and you are, by its very nature, required to listen. And I think re-engagement in the public schools and in all of our responsibilities as stewards of these educational institutions, not only is it good for the students and the educators, but it's good for us as a society to engage with people. And it's really the only place where we come together and have a chance uh, where we find common ground. All of us believe in our children and grandchildren. I mean, you know, there's, there's just nothing like children, you know, and we want the best for them. Well, I, I don't like using children as pawns and I, you know, that kind of thing, but I wonder if they could be a catalyst for us and that we could use those forums to then begin to engage at what the, the real deeper issues that are going on. 
I, we're getting close to the end of the evening, but one issue that we had talked about earlier that I, I want to make sure that we cover is the question of demonization. And the, you both have expressed a concern that in our public dialogue that it, it goes beyond losing basic civility. We actually seem to have some need, it appears, to demonize the other side. And I think, Lucy, you probably see this a fair amount in, in, in your coverage. Yes, and lying to do it. I don't, can't remember a time in the 50 years I've been reporting in Florida where I have seen more said, both by people who stand up in a, with, a, with a microphone and in advertising uh, for elections, where the, the, the accusations they make against an opponent are simply not true provably not true and when someone then raises the question wait that's a lie uh politifact calls them out when they lie but they continue to lie and say oh well you know you don't know what you're doing uh and people don't get angry and you know really get do something about it bill bill do you have any thought on on this question of demonization and is there any role in the faith-based community to to lower the tenor of, of of the anger in the debate. Well, I think I think um, you know I see several of my colleagues and ministers here. Um, I think all of us have tried to change the rhetoric and try to separate who people are from what they do. You know, I don't mind telling you that I'm a sinner too, and all of us have darkness. All of us have failures in our lives and who a person is should not be measured by what they do right or what they do wrong we are all created in god's image right and rene girard wonderful french philosopher has written a wonderful book about the scapegoat and the, when we scapegoat or demonize any group of people what we do is we create a huge blind spot in our own lives to our own problems uh, we neglect dealing with what's going on in our own hearts, and we risk greater hindrance to our society of coming together. So there should never be one group of people that we should blame or praise for our problems or our successes. It, it really does take all of us. Um, but it takes all of us and our differences. I think that's, you know, the greatest of these is love. And as much as we talk a lot about tolerance, love is a greater virtue than tolerance. And uh, love requires us to love our neighbor as ourself, not be our neighbor. Okay. And so in other words, I'm different than my neighbor, a lot different. And so their difference is a gift that we need in our community. It's not an obstacle. But we need to be, be okay with sharing our differences and talking about them. And then sitting long enough to listen. Um, I hope newspapers are part of that conversation and a part of those differences. We should be. And, and I think uh, at least the churches I see represented, certainly the one I'm in, uh, that we're in, and that, that hosts this group, is a part of that. And I will tell you, we're not like the Episcopals, as you probably know. But you know what? We need Episcopals. We need every person here. And we need to know what they're like, and they need to know what we're like. And it, it, it contributes to what it means to be community. 
Can I say something about First Baptist that I was struck by some years ago? You may know the year it happened. Uh, for many years, springtime Tallahassee was celebrated, and some of us would get down on a very hot or a very rainy day, and the only sign of a bathroom was a portalette somewhere. And some years ago, the Baptist Church opened their doors to any citizen that wanted to walk in during that celebration. Uh, and had to put staff on, on board to, to let us do it. But I thought that was one of the most Christian things I had seen the Christian <laughs> community do. <laughs> uh, but the other thing that I wonder, I guess my, the last word, Good. one of the things that disturbs me most in, in among us today, uh, not speaking so much of the people in this room because I don't know where your buttons are, but is anger. There is so much anger in so many people that it's frightening to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have come to the end of our time. I, I have a gift, and I understand that this is okay to give this to uh, to our minister. I know it's okay to give it to uh, Lucy. Um, <laughs> this is a bottle uh, of Seven Deadly Zins. Um <laughs> For both of our speakers, we just knew that the coffee cup was not going to be enough. Would you all please join me in thanking them for their participation? Hey there, it's Vanessa back with you. What did I tell you guys? So much to think about there, right? I constantly find myself thinking about the political system that we have set up and how to win, especially past the local level, you sort of have to play the game in order to get elected. So should we be focusing our attention more on reforms to the system rather than being so frustrated with every individual politician? You know, things like the way the primaries are set up in a lot of states makes it so the candidates have to appeal to the extremes to make it past the primary. And things like the money in politics and how the candidates have to start campaigning right after they win a race, which takes focus away from the big and important job we elected them to do. Here's another thing I find fascinating. If you're a regular listener, you've probably heard one of Liz's favorite appeals. She encourages listeners to donate or subscribe to their local paper because she says, if local journalism dies democracy won't be far behind. I've come to agree with her, and I think this program did an excellent job of demonstrating why that is so very true. Freedom isn't free, you guys. We all have to be part of helping our democracy survive. All right, now for that super exciting announcement that I promised you. We will be featuring Todd Rose this season. He's the author of Dark Horse, and his new book is Collective Illusions, which will be the topic of the program that he joins us for. I've started reading Collective Illusions, and I just have to tell you, it's already blowing my mind. It explains some of the seemingly hypocritical behavior that we so easily notice in our fellow Americans, but it's probably much harder to see in our own selves. And several points in this program today made me think of Todd's insights. For example, Todd mentions a study that his think tank, Populous, conducted in 2019 of 5,200 people on the ways the American public defines success. 
Is success following our talents and interests to be the best we can be? Or is it based on achieving wealth, status, and power? So this study showed that 97% of people chose that following talents and interests is how they would define their own success. But also 92% thought that others would choose wealth, status, and power. So this is an example of a collective illusion. But here's why I bring this up now when reflecting on this program today. On the topic of morality and specifically public versus private morality, I think we have to dig deeper here to consider are our actions matching our words and do we get caught up with the keeping up with the Jones mentality or maybe even fear of losing what we have, possibly without even realizing it. And also how it's so easy to judge other people harshly while we give ourselves a pass. Like I said, lots to think about you guys. Listen, I am loving this book so much, constantly trying to ditch my family so I can read more. And you guys should join me. We are planning for book clubs leading up to the spring event with Todd Rose. So make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter so you'll be the first to know. Actually, in this case, that would be second to know because legit, you guys, this is the first announcement right here on the podcast. But to know when all this is coming and get more details, do please subscribe to the newsletter on our website. Go to villagesquare.us or you can reach out to us directly there too. While you're there please consider becoming a member by clicking on that donate link at the top. Our members help us deliver this important programming to you year round. And you can join this fabulous group of devoted Americans for just $7 a month or $76 a year. We also welcome business members for 250. Go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. Funding for this program is provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We thank them for their support, and we thank you for listening to Seven Deadly Sins, The Decline of Moral Community, and The Rise of Public Corruption. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.